kingdom of God. Did you wake up this morning thinking about how you should live in the kingdom of God? I don't know about you. Um, I don't, th that's not something that readily rolls right off of my tongue and my thoughts. And um, I probably learned as much, or if not more, about the kingdom of God, at least biblically speaking, this week than I ever have. Isn't that crazy? Um, I'm, I'm in, I'm, we're in, going through a study. I get paid to talk. Sometimes it just doesn't flow. It's really okay. Um, we're going through a wonderful study called Aspire, being transformed by the gospel, being changed by the gospel. And it's a study that goes through the scriptures teaching us lessons about the gospel in the entire Bible. Now, today's lesson actually begins with Judges, over here in Judges. And then, before it's finished, well, it pretty much goes like that. So today I'm going to preach this section of the Bible. Well, you know, really what this section of the Bible is talking about is the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel. And it reflects how important, how familiar, how um, advancing is the kingdom of God, at least in God's mind. I turn in my Bible just for an introductory passage over in Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 19. Makes a clear statement about the Lord. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. Kingdom language. It's how God, well, we said it a, a few weeks ago, how does God relate to me? And we talked about the covenants that God has given, the promises and the fulfillments that we have in the covenants. Here we see God as the ruler, as Lord, as king over his kingdom, the psalmist says. So when I began to think about this major section and how is it that you, you preach this in one sermon kind of ridiculous. Of course, we're not going to do justice to these texts in one sermon. However, when I looked at the beginning of the story and I looked at the end of the story, I see there that indeed it is the story of the kingdom of Israel. Okay? It's the story of the kingdom of Israel. Now, when we were talking about the covenants, and we were talking last week, say, about the sacrificial System. We were talking about the Mosaic Covenant and the laws that were in there. We ended up saying that those laws teach us more about the character of God. In the sacrificial system, we see pictures. You remember that? Or the what? The echoes. I know you remember from week to week. Even no matter how dramatized I get from time to time, it's still... A week later and life goes by and I understand those things. But we were talking about the echoes 
or what the letter of Hebrews calls the shadows. In the Old Testament was the shadow. In the New Testament was the reality. Well, when I stand back and look at this topic of the kingdom, I think the same thing. I, I want to know, God, what are you teaching me? What are you teaching us? It's obviously not just some sideline issue. It's not something to be put on the periphery, to be marginalized. It's something pretty central to what you're doing in the world. And I would suggest that what we see in the story of the Bible is once again pictures echoes deep lessons for us as we seek to live out the New Testament Christian life. So what I'm going to do, a bit unusual, if you have a pencil, it'll be very important. I don't know whether you write in your Bible or whether you want to write on the notes. What I want to do, first of all, is I want to chart the history of the kingdom of Israel. I'm going to give you 12 verses from the period of the judges all the way through to the end of the Old Testament story. I'm going to give you 12 benchmarks that you can generally, and I mean generally, follow the story of the Bible, yea, follow the history of Israel. So I'm going to begin in the book of Judges. I'm going to start, I think, uh, let's see, back here in Judges 17. So I go to Judges chapter 17, and I see verse 6. Judges, that's where I'm going to begin, because this is where Israel is running into challenge. They've, they've moved into the land under Joshua. They've cleaned out some of it, but now they're trying to figure out life as a new people in a fixed place. They're trying to figure out how to be a nation. They're trying to figure out how to be a kingdom. And in Judges 17, 6, this is what the Bible says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, first of all, we start in the negative. We start with no king at all. How can you have a kingdom if you don't have a king? And basically, this is what the people were saying in the period of the judges. You might know the story of the judges. The people moved into the land, but they didn't completely obey God in cleaning out the land. And since they didn't clean out the land, the Philistines were still there. The Moabites were still there. The Ammonites were still there. The Canaanites and the Edomites all of these people living in and around where Israel was supposed to live. And because of their disobedience, God would use one of these nations to attack Israel. And the Moabites would attack. And therefore, God would raise up a deliverer to help them. The people would cry out for help, and God would give them what the Bible calls a judge. We call a deliverer, like Gideon, like Samson, like Deborah and on. He would give these deliverers, but the people seemed to live in a cycle. Oh, they would sin. God would bring in punishment. They would cry out for help. God would raise up a deliverer, and he would conquer the enemy. Then there'd be rest among the people. Then the people would sin again. 
And then God would send in another one. And around and around and around they would go in this cycle. Until one day over in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So now I'm traveling to 1 Samuel a few pages. And I go over to Samuel chapter 8. My next verse that I'm giving you. Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 6. Because in this in this section, in this chapter, the people go to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we want a king. And in verse 6 it says, But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And in verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so God told Samuel to give them a king. Even though that they were rejecting God, God said, listen to their voice and give them a king. This is the first king of what we call the United Kingdom. And so if we turn over a few more pages to chapter 10, to chapter 10 and verse 1, we see that Samuel does this. This is verse number 3. If you're marking it down and you'd like to know the benchmarks of the history of Israel, this is the third one. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his, that is Saul's head, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord. And you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And so God told Samuel to anoint Saul the first king of the United Kingdom. God's choice to lead his people. Now, finally, we have a king to lead us out. But the next benchmark would show us that Saul was not a faithful king to the Lord. Over in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, we're moving through our Old Testament, and in chapter 13, about in verse 14, I believe, let me get to that right, chapter 13 verse 14 the bible tells us this story that sam uh, excuse me that saul was supposed to go out and fight a battle and uh, so he had the troops all lined up at the battlefront there was a problem though they don't go to battle without a sacrifice and so there saul found himself pacing back and forth waiting for samuel to come and offer the sacrifice but saul becoming impatient decided, okay, Samuel's too late. I'm going to do it myself. And Saul offers the sacrifice. Well, we've already learned last week in our sacrificial system that only the right people at the right time in the right way are allowed to offer the sacrifice. So they went to war. Why, you would probably think that they went to war and they lost the battle because Saul did something he shouldn't have done. But in fact, they did go to battle. And they won, and they came back. And as they were coming back, Saul was met by Samuel on the road. And Samuel said, what is this evil thing that you've done? And Saul looked at him and said, what are you, well, paraphrase, what, what, are, 
What are you so exercised about here? What's your problem here? And you didn't show up on time, so I offered the sacrifice. Well, you've been disobedient to God because you have done this evil thing, plus you have not obeyed him. He said to destroy everything. Oh, I destroyed everything. He said, then what is the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen that I hear in my ear? You have disobeyed the Lord. And Samuel turned to walk away from Saul. And Saul reached out and grabbed the cloak of his garment and tore it. And Samuel turned back around to look at Saul and says, Thus the kingdom of Israel will be torn from your hand and you will no longer be king. And so sure enough, the kingdom was taken away from Saul in this encounter. But now in, in uh, 13, 14, but now... Your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, that the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So we go over to chapter 16. We go over to chapter 16, and when we get there, we get the second king of the United Kingdom. After Saul, first king of the United Kingdom, second king of the United Kingdom, is David, of course. In, in, uh, in 1 Samuel 16, 13, which is the next one, the next passage of Scripture, then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And so now we get the second king of the United Kingdom, David, is anointed king over it. We know that David fought Goliath. We know that David was a man after God's own heart. And so David reigned in the stead of Saul, certainly after he had died. And then we travel over to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. Let me turn over there. Oh, past that, past the second Samuel, and over to 1 Kings chapter 1 in verse 30. In verse 30. Uh, 28, you see David's there and answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came to, into the king's presence and stood before the king, and the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity. And so now in verse 30, As I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so will I do this day. And so even though David had sinned with Bathsheba, it was her son Solomon who would be the third king of the United Kingdom. Now I want to remind you folks what I'm doing here. We're talking kingdom talk. We're talking kingdom language. We're seeing that all throughout this entire story of the Old Testament, God is focusing on the kingdom. And here's the third king of the United Kingdom. And then trouble happens as we journey over to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. I love the story of the Bible. I know some of you kind of maybe you're not into the history thing, and that's why I've only chosen 12. 
for you to be able to chart the, the Old Testament history of the kingdom. But when we get to 1 Kings chapter 12, we see that Solomon's son is now the next king. His name is Rehoboam, and Rehoboam has a decision to make. You see, because Solomon did something as king of the kingdom that way back Samuel said the king would do. What is that, pastor? What is it that Samuel said the king would do? Well, Samuel said way back here when the people were clamoring for a king, God told Samuel, say, he said, say to the people, if you want a king, you need to know something about getting an earthly king. This earthly king is going to, number one, he's going to draft your young men into the military. Number two, he is going to tax all of the people. And number three, he's going to put your children into his personal service. That's what the king is going to do. And the people in Samuel's day said, I don't care what he's going to do. I still, we still want a king. We want to be just like all the people who live around us. We want a king like the other nations have a king. And so Samuel did indeed appoint it. Well, now here's Rehoboam. Rehoboam serving after his father Solomon, who, and the reason I bring it up, who, Solomon, did what Samuel said in spades. Solomon did what Samuel said the king would do more than anybody else. Samuel had the biggest draft, the biggest military. Excuse me, Solomon had the biggest draft, this biggest military. Uh, Solomon taxed the people more than any other king taxed them. And Solomon put more people into personal service than any other king. People came from all over the world to see Solomon's kingdom to see the things that Solomon was doing, building a palace to, the, to, to, to God, the new temple, building a palace for the king. He was, all these building projects were done by people and their taxes and worked them hard. And now Solomon was approached, excuse me, Rehoboam. I get so excited. Now Rehoboam was approached by the people saying, man, you got to ease up on us. We're tired. We're weary from all that your father Solomon has done to us. And he said, well, go away for three days and come back and I'll have my report. And they went away three days and they came back. And it seems Rehoboam counseled with the older men, the, the men who had lived through Solomon. And, and, they, and they spoke to Rehoboam and they said, Rehoboam, Rehoboam, if you will be a servant to these people... They will serve you all the days of your life. And then he spoke to a few of the group of young men, his friends. And their friends said, eh, they're a bunch of belly achers, just stick it to them. Okay, it doesn't say that in the Bible, but I'm trying to hurry through the story. You know, just make them think that, oh, compared to you, your father was easy on them. And so he listened to the young friends, and that split the kingdom. That's chapter 12, so that when we're in 1 Kings 12, we read in verse 16, that next verse. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. 
and split the kingdom. Ten tribes to the north and two tribes to the south. Now the two tribes to the south will be known as Judah and they will be a separate kingdom. And the ten tribes to the north will be known as Israel and they will retain that name as a separate kingdom. Now we have two kingdoms and we have a group of kings in the north and we have a group of kings in the south. And never did the group to the north ever have a good king. They never once had the kind of king that pleased God. And so I journey over to 2 Kings for the next passage in chapter 17. In 2 Kings chapter 17. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, because these people never had a good king, this is what I read in verse 6 of 2 Kings chapter 17. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria. Now, Hoshea is Israel's king, all right? In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured the capital city of Israel, Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the, on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. In other words, the Assyrians came down, attacked Israel, the ten tribes of the north, and scattered them to the four winds, never to return to Israel because they never obeyed God. Now, the people in the south, they were a bit different. Sometimes they'd have a good king, sometimes not a good king then a bad king, then a terrible king. And this is something interesting I found in this story of the kingdom in the Old Testament, that God has a line, that God has a limit. You want to turn to the next passage? It's 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 26. 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 26. Learning the history of the Old Testament, the history of the kingdom of Israel, I turn to chapter 23 and verse 26. And this is what it says, still in the ESV. Others say, nevertheless. The old King James said, notwithstanding. Some in the New American Standard said, however, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all of the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. Now the story and the reason that he's saying this is the reason he's saying however or still or nevertheless is because during these days right here in Kings there was a revival. Good things happening. Josiah was the king and they recovered the book of the law and great things were going on. And yet here in this verse, it says, yet, still, nevertheless, notwithstanding, God was not going to turn back from the anger he would display on Judah because what they've already done. God said, enough is enough. I don't care what you do. You're out of here. You're gone. Kingdom of Israel, you're gone to the Assyrians. Kingdom of Judah, I told you about this in the covenant, didn't I? 
I said, if you would keep my covenant, you would get to live in this land. Well, now I'm still keeping my covenant, as I was instructed. I'm still keeping my covenant of the kingdom. You did not keep my command, and therefore you cannot live in my land. And I am taking you out. And so the Bible tells us in the same way that the Assyrians captured that, they passed this point of no return. I go all the way over to the end of Chronicles. We're almost there, folks. I go all the way over for my next benchmark in 2 Chronicles 36. In 2 Chronicles 36, this is what Judah was doing. Listen to this. It doesn't need any explanation. This is what Judah was doing all of these years. But they kept mocking the messengers of God. They kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. And God appointed, as we see in the passage on down here, that the Babylonians came in under Nebuchadnezzar and attacked the kingdom of Judah and carried them away into exile. Ah, but differently from Assyria, who never returned through the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm not turning there. God said, you're only going to be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, and then I will let you come home. This is the kingdom of Israel's history. So I turned just one page in my Bible. I like that. And chapter 1 of the book of Ezra in verse 3 says, whoever there is, whoever there is among you, this is the next to last verse, whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Rebuild the house. Rebuild the wall. Rebuild the city. Rebuild the kingdom. And so one of my all-time favorite verses comes in Nehemiah just over the next book. And it's the last one I'm going to read to you. I've got a point to all of this. Although, in my arrogance, I would say, learning this and doing this is enough. Bible is good enough by itself, but it doesn't make a sermon, so we've got to do it. Nehemiah 4.6 So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. See that? For the people had a mind to work. I love that. I love that. We're back. We're back. We're building. Israel's restored. This is the history of the kingdom of Israel, the story of it. Oh, yeah, we skipped over all the prophets. That's because the prophets are intertwined into the story and speak to the kings and speak to the people all during the course of this. So that when Jesus comes along and speaks of the kingdom and that the kingdom is at hand, there are lessons for us. Now look at me. Let's see if we can put this together. <laughs> 
Just a matter of minutes. Last week, we're talking about sacrificial system. We saw pictures and we saw fulfillments in the New Testament. I'm asking myself, God, why is it that you take so much of the Bible to talk about the kingdom of Israel and what happened to them? I'm thinking so that when Jesus comes, when the fulfillment comes, and he says, now the kingdom of God, Luke 17, is in your midst, we begin to understand and we begin to learn of what the reality is and what the picture was there, what the shadow was back there, but now the kingdom of God is among you. You see, the problem is we're not Israelites. We don't get it. We think it's poetry. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man who walked. The kingdom of heaven is like such and such and such and such. Oh, isn't that nice? And that's because we don't hear with the ears of a Jewish person. We don't hear with the ears of an Israelite the kingdom that's gone on. Because if we did, and some person, I'm going to use another word, but I need to be dignified. I'm in church. Some person stood in front of you and said, the kingdom is here and I'm the king. You'd say, wait a minute. You know? So what are the lessons for us to learn? Well, quite frankly, they are myriad. There's so many we couldn't possibly. But I want us to at least pull the lesson that we have in our aspire in with the story of the Bible for a few things. First of all, number one, I want the definition of the kingdom. I want to know how to define what it is that you're talking about. And so I take George Eldon Ladd's definition of the kingdom. The kingdom is the dynamic reign and region of the kingly rule of God. The dynamic reign and region of the kingly rule of God. That is that the, the kingdom that Jesus comes and says the kingdom is at hand is to say that God rules and reigns over all that is his. It's very, very um, synonymous with saying Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. In fact, that would be the first characteristic that I would bring to your attention. The first characteristic of this kingdom I would bring to your attention is the name of the king. If, there are a lot of names for God in the Old Testament, there's no question. But none that speaks of his sovereign reign, of his sovereign lordship, like the name Yahweh. Like the name Yahweh, we abbreviate it YW. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, because we use the consonants that are used in the Hebrew language and we fill in some vowels so we can try and say it when in fact it was such a name that the Jewish people wouldn't say it. Actually, they would say El Shaddai, which is God Almighty. If they were reading Yahweh, even though they saw the words in there, it's so awesome, it's so reverent, it's so holy, it's so sovereign that they would not even speak the name Yahweh, even though they would read the letters there, they would say El Shaddai. They would say God Almighty. The name speaks of a sovereign. 
And when we get to the New Testament and see that translated from Hebrew into Greek, we get the word kurios. And it's very evident that Jesus takes the Lord name, the most prevalent name of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament is the name of a sovereign ruler of a kingdom, Lord. He says it's among you. The reason why the kingdom was among them is because the king was among them. And when we get into all these apologetics and things like that that say Jesus never, never really testified that he was God, my friends, these people do not know their Bible and they do not know Israel's history because the people living during Jesus' day knew perfectly well what he was saying when he said, I am the Lord. And when Thomas bows the knees and says, My Lord, my God, he is bowing before the King of kings and the Lord of lords because he uses that kingly name, Lord. The second characteristic that I bring to your attention is that if, if it, and it's so general, I know it's general. Don't write me and tell me I left out this, I left out that. I'm leaving out a ton. But when I look at this whole thing and I see the way Israel treated the reign of God, the kingdom of God, I turn to a place like Matthew 13. Matthew, it's in the New Testament. Matthew 13, 44. Still looking in the Bible for the answers and seeing. And in Matthew 13, 44, I say don't, if you want a lesson from all that up and down and kings in and out, here it is. Here it is. Number two, treasure, treasure the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom of God that we are a citizen of, that we will live in eternity we will be in fellowship. Oh, he's saying, go sell everything you have to lay hold of this treasure of being a citizen of God in the kingdom of heaven. It's to be treasured. Don't be like, you, you say, why did God take all that time? We said that last week. We look at the ups and downs. Don't these people get it? Don't these people get it? Why, they're foolish. This prophet came in and spoke to him this way. This prophet said that. This prophet said, Jesus is coming. This prophet said, turn back the Lord. This prophet, this prophet, this prophet. You know, it reminds me of that parable. You, you know, the, the man who had the garden, but it wasn't near his house. And so he appointed stewards and to watch over the garden. And the next year, the master sent, the master sent somebody say, go check on my garden. And so he goes to check on the garden. They see him coming, and they say, ah, let's kill him, and then we can, you know. So I beat him up and sent him back. Well, he sent somebody else. How's my garden doing? Oh, they beat him up. Sent him back. So finally, the master says, what? The master says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. When they see my son, 
they'll respect him and I'll find out how my garden is doing. And so he sent his son and they did what? They killed him. That's the story. That's it. That's what he's talking about. This whole thing. So if you want to not be like that, find the treasure. treasure. Find the treasure. Because there's still something not fulfilled by the covenant. There's still something left. There's still more to come about the kingdom. And I finish it with this in the place where you would expect. Where would I go? But the book of the Revelation, I told you, we'll do the whole Bible. And so I turn way over here to the book of the Revelation John had about the of Jesus. And I go to chapter 11, and I see something magnificent. And I hope that it, for you, does what it's done for me this week in elevating our thoughts about the kingdom of God. Because when I'm here in chapter 11 and verse 15, this is what I read. Still to come, I believe. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's a trumpet sound coming. I believe it. I believe that there's a trumpet sound. In fact, it's the seventh trumpet. It's the last of the trumpets. And trumpets symbolize throughout all of the Bible that something is about to happen. And this seventh trumpet is the last trumpet that will sound telling you something is about to happen. The culmination, the fulfillment of the kingdom and the king will return and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. If we have a lesson that we're going through and learning lessons, it's generally, don't be like this. Magnify the name of Yahweh, of Kurios, of Lord. Treasure it above all the treasures of this earth. And join with the saints everywhere in saying, even so, Come, Lord Jesus. We don't know when that will be. We have received some instructions before he comes again. We've received some wonderful message about how we're to fellowship together, what we're to remember about that. And we're clearly told that we're to celebrate him as King Jesus in this way, in the taking of the Lord's Supper until he returns again. I'm glad the kids are here today. <laughs> Good, you see what mom and dad go through every week now. Pray for them, would you, more children? No. Kids, this is a time when we come together to do the Lord's Supper. Some people call it communion. It's a time in which the people who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that's the definition of a Christian, come and share this symbol of a meal together in fellowship, confessing that we believe that Jesus is our Lord, that he is our King, and that one day he's coming again. So I'm going to invite the men who are going to help participate 
to please come forward at this time. And, and folks, it's a little different, not a lot. In fact, it's really no different for you at all. We're just going, we're going to still station a person in front of each of the four major sections of our auditorium. I'm going to, in a minute, invite you to stand and exit the road to the left and um, come and receive the elements. Keep them in your hand and return to your place to the right, and we'll take them together. Again, more than welcome to bring the children